Today I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. I want to read verses 1 to 14 in your hearing. As today we continue our summer sermon series entitled Rebuild. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 1. When Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life? From those heaps of rubble burned as they are. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, also said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall." Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The passage I just read for you is a story of spiritual warfare. Whenever God's people do God's work in God's way, you can rest assured that opposition will come over the horizon. Sometimes that opposition is external in that it originates outside the people of God. Then there are other times when the opposition is internal. It originates within the people of God, for there is questioning and backbiting and the throwing of insults. But then there are other times 
when the spiritual warfare, the opposition, is both external and internal. Such is the case of Nehemiah chapter 4. You might recall that Nehemiah received a God-sized job when he was still in captivity in Persia. The Lord uh, wanted him to spearhead an operation, to go back to the capital city of Jerusalem and rebuild the wall, refortify the city. Nehemiah received the favor of the Persian king, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes not only gave him permission to go, but he pretty much funded the project. When Nehemiah got back to the capital city of Jerusalem, among the people of God, he shared the vision, and, and they embraced it wholeheartedly, and they began to rebuild the wall. By the time the curtain is lifted on chapter 4, we are reintroduced to one of the antagonists of the story, a man by the name of Samballot. Samballot is a Samaritan. So up front you know that Jews and Samaritans have always hated each other. It's, it's a, a worse rivalry than the Hatfield and the McCoys, the Alabama fans and the Auburn fans. I mean, these people despise one another. Samballot was a Samaritan. And when you look at Samballot in Nehemiah chapter 4, his face is red. His teeth are clenched. His eyebrows are furrowed. His eyes are piercing. His neck veins are bulging because the scripture says he was angry and greatly incensed. Now why would Samballot be so mad because the Jews are rebuilding the wall? Simply stated, a strong Jerusalem meant a weak Samballot. So the stronger Jerusalem was, the weaker the Samaritans were in that region and in that vicinity. So because of that, there was external conflict. Samballot and the Samaritans, they began to hurl words of ridicule against Nehemiah and the workers. Samballot asked questions like this. What are those feeble Jews doing? The word feeble conjures the picture of a withered flower. So he's asking the question, what are those pansies up to? What are those, what are those weak individuals, those, those morons, those Jews, what are they doing? Do they think they can rebuild the wall? Do they think and believe that they will have sacrifices once again? In so many words, what Sam Ballad is saying is it's going to take a lot more than a prayer and a worship service for you to regain influence over this region. Don't you think for one second you can rebuild the wall, refortify the city, offer up sacrifices and worship, worship your God and think that somehow your God is going to strengthen you, answer your call, and you can reestablish your prominence in this area? Oh, he's asking question after question, ridicule after ridicule, distraction after distraction. He begins to mock the frenzy with which they worked. Do they actually think they'll finish in a day? Look at all the rubble. Look at all the stones that are in piles. Look, look at how much destruction has happened for decade after decade. And they are so uh, frenzied as they uh, begin to labor and work side by side. Do they think they're going to finish in a day? Do they think their God is a God of resurrection? Do they actually think that God can raise dead stones? Do they actually think that their God can raise up a wall out of a burnt heap of rubble and ash? Do they actually believe that God, their God, is a God of resurrection and renewal? They hurled words of ridicule. 
Sanballat was standing there next to his sidekick named Tobiah. Uh, Tobiah chimed in and he said, yeah, what they're building, if even a fox climbed up on it, a little lightweight fox, if a fox climbed up on their paper mache wall, he would tear down their stones. He would destroy their weak wall. Every time I read the book of Nehemiah and I come across Tobiah, I visualize in my mind that Tobiah is that short, fat punk on the playground. And, and he only speaks tough when the big guy's beside him. That's Sanballat. And when Sanballat is beside Tobiah, Tobiah talks tough. But if Sanballat's not around, Tobiah never would say half the things that he actually thinks. That's Tobiah. So you've got a situation where Sanballat and the Samaritans are hurling words of ridicule and insult. They're joined with Tobiah, and, and he also echoes and reinforces that ridicule. And they just are calling into question everything that God's people are trying to do. It was Thomas Carlyle who said ridicule is the language of the devil. This is not the first time that the devil has used ridicule in an effort to distract the people of God. No, ridicule was used in the days of Noah. As Noah was hammering the two-by-fours together to build the ark, the people of his culture issued words of ridicule and conflict. They said he was mad. He's crazy. What do you think that, that God has given you some vision that he's going to flood the earth? And Noah said that's exactly what's going to happen. And God proved faithful, didn't he? Ridicule was used in the days of David. The young shepherd boy went to the battlefield. He saw the nine-foot giant from Gath named Goliath. Nobody was willing to go one-on-one, toe-to-toe with Goliath. But David said, I'll take him and I'll slay him because God is a God of promises. He went with a slingshot in hand and a few stones in a pouch. And as he was making his way to the battlefield, Goliath saw that wooden slingshot. And Goliath, with a thundering voice that would have shaken the trees of Lebanon, said, Am I a dog that you would come with me with sticks? Are we going to play a game of fetch? Are you going to throw the stick and you want me to go and get it? I tell you, I'm going to devour you. I'm going to slay you and slaughter you and give your body, your carcass, to the birds of the air. The Bible gives us a G-rated version of Goliath's ridicule. In fact, it just says that Goliath, the champion from Gath, cursed David. That's a G-rated version, friends. I mean, Goliath said every four-letter word in the book. He probably even said something derogatory about David's mama. I mean, he said everything he possibly could in a, in a, in a type of a ridicule fashion in an effort to try to intimidate David, try to dissuade David, try to deter David from the work of God that had been given to David. Oh, but some of you know the story that on that day, God gave David the victory, and it was David who slayed Goliath. The words of ridicule were in the days of Jesus. New Testament tells us that Jesus was writhing in pain. He was hoisted in an air, dangling on a cross made of wood, bearing upon his shoulders your sins and mine. And as he was there paying a sin debt he did not owe, because you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay, people passed by and they hurled insults upon him. They ridiculed him. They mocked him, saying, he saved others. Why can't he save himself if he is truly the Son of God? And sure enough, Jesus died on that cross. 
but God proved faithful. For Jesus' dead body was taken off the cross, placed into the grave, and on the third day, Jesus rose victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave, so that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Every society uses ridicule in an effort to distract God's people from doing God's work. Maybe people have issued words of ridicule against you. Um, Every culture is either neutral or antagonistic against Christianity. You look throughout the books of human history, and there are very few, if any, cultures that are friendly towards Christianity. Every culture, including the one we live in, is at best neutral at times and at worst antagonistic against Christ and Christians. I mean, just think about what is said in the media or what is done through the government or uh, what is spoken from word on the street. And things are said against Christ and Christ followers that would not dare be said against other religions, whether it's Islam or Judaism or atheism or Hinduism or, or one who's a follower of Buddha. I mean, things are said against Christians that would not dare be spoken in ridicule against any other of the world religions. And why is that? One way that the adversary tries to distract God's people from God's work is through words of ridicule. And maybe you have received that ridicule. I mean, people have called you intolerant, old-fashioned, one who is guilty of bigotry or homophobic, one who is narrow-minded or close-minded. Maybe you've been called all those things and far worse. And you have faced external spiritual conflict, words of ridicule that the adversary wages against you, especially when you try to do God's work in God's way. Well, how do you respond? How did Nehemiah respond? I'll tell you this much. He did not respond in like kind. He did not retaliate. Instead, he prayed. Hear us, O God, and turn back their insults upon their heads. In other words, God, we need you to step in and save the day. We need for you to take care of this problem. We need for you to hear and not just hear and be concerned, but we need you to act and react. We need you to do something so that you can fight for us. We need for you to step in and save the day. Nehemiah tells us that in verse 6, they continued the work. The wall reached half its height. Because the people work with all their hearts. You would think to yourself, well, all's well that ends well. I mean, that's good. Crisis averted. External conflict came against God's people. God's people did not retaliate by uh, ushering words of of rebuttal against them and and ridicule against them. Instead, they prayed, and that's great. They prayed, and, and, and they kept on working. They didn't get distracted. They didn't acquiesce. They did not negotiate the plan. They did not uh, get less tenacious about God's truth. No, they kept on working. They kept their nose to the grind. They kept doing what God had called them to do. And, and, the, and the effect of it was that the wall continued to be built. It's now half its height. I'll tell you this morning that prayer is the only appropriate response to opposition. Prayer is the only appropriate response to opposition. When you face opposition, when you face spiritual warfare, the greatest tool in your arsenal is prayer. 
where you, like Nehemiah, simply say, hear us, O God, and turn their insults back on their own heads. You deal with them how you need to deal with them, but God, we need for you to step in and save the day. So God, please hear us. Prayer, my friends, is the only appropriate response towards opposition. And that's what we find Nehemiah doing. They pray. And they work, they don't get distracted, the wall continues to be built, it's now half its height. The people work with all their heart, all their courage, all their might, all their enthusiasm. You think? All's well that ends well. It's good. It's how you handle a problem. Now, they told the devil where to go and how to get there. Now they have thoroughly defeated the adversary. He won't be bothering them anymore. Oh, but friend... If you read more of the story, you understand that after halftime, the devil intensified his ridicule. I've been uh, told in athletics that the first few minutes after halftime are the most crucial to the outcome of the game. If that's true in sports, it just also might be true in spiritual warfare. The people of God in this story, they were at halftime. The wall was half its height. And if you're not careful, the people of God could have rested on their laurels. They could have just said, look, we're, we're all okay. But instead, the adversary, he raised the intensity so that the city of Jerusalem was now surrounded by the enemy. If you had the Bible in one hand and a map of ancient Israel in the other, you would find out that Sanballat and the Samaritans were to the north. Tobiah was to the east. Geshem, the Arabs, were to the south. The men of Ashdod, which you and I would call Philistines, were to the west. In other words, the adversary, the devil himself, worked so fervently that he, through his enemies, surrounded the sacred city of Jerusalem. So now everywhere God's people looked, there was an enemy. At one time, it was just Sam Ballot talking to Tobiah. It was just the Arabs that might be talking to the men of, of, uh, of Ashdod. But now all of them are in cahoots. Now all of them are plotting together. Now all of them have come together to say, we will stop this work. We will thwart the work and will of God. We will execute. We will slaughter. We will kill without them even knowing we're coming. We will take out all the Jews. And they plotted together. This external conflict, the external chaos, the, the ridicule that was spoken, the lies that were verbalized, that external then became internal. The people of God actually began to believe the enemy. The people of the Jewish nation living outside the city of Jerusalem, closest to the enemy, they would come back, and Nehemiah says they would say ten times over, they're going to attack us. They're going to kill us. They're going to attack us. They are going to kill us. Guys, are you listening to me? They are going to come, and they're going to attack us, and they are going to kill us. The people living outside the city, close to the enemy, they began to believe the lies of the enemy. And they came back and they told the people living in the city of Jerusalem, watch out, everywhere you look, the enemy's attacking us and they will win the day. Friends, if you live close enough to the enemy, eventually you'll start talking like the enemy. Y'all didn't get that. 
So I'm going to repeat it. If you live close enough to the enemy, eventually you'll start talking like the enemy. That's what happens in this story. The people that were living close enough to the enemy, they heard the lies, they got the tweets, they heard the text messages, they saw the email posts, they saw all the social media broadcasts, they saw everything that they were putting up, they heard what was being said, and then they said, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to attack us, and they're going to kill us, and they went back in to, to their family and friends living in the city of Jerusalem, and they said ten times over, they're going to attack and they're going to kill. We've got to stop. We've got to abort the mission. We've got to quit. We've got to pipe down a little bit. We're being a little bit too tenacious. We've got to negotiate with the enemy because if we don't, we will die and we'll perish. See, if you live close enough to the enemy, eventually you'll start talking like the enemy. If you live close enough to your enemy, the devil himself, eventually you'll start walking like him and talking like him. And you'll start espousing the lies that he levels against the church. If you live close enough to the enemy, eventually your words will be dripping with disdain and ridicule. If you live close enough to the enemy, eventually your speech will be foul. If you live close enough to the enemy, eventually you'll start speaking the lies as if they were truth. The people living outside the city, they live close to the enemy. They started talking like the enemy. But this internal conflict, it was not just the, the Jewish population lived outside the city. Nehemiah says even those people in Judah, they began to say, the work is too much. The laborers are losing their strength. There's so much rubble. We are not going to be able to finish the job. This is coming from the people in Judah. The descendants of Judah from Genesis chapter 49 are supposed to be individuals who are great warriors and great rulers. In Genesis 49, when the blessing is given to Judah, the blessing says that Judah will be a lion's cub, ferocious warrior, that the scepter will never leave the hand of Judah. That Judah and his descendants will be powerful rulers. So in Nehemiah chapter 4, eventually the internal conflict gets so deep that it gets to the front line defense. It gets to the people of Judah, those warriors, those rulers, those leaders in the community. And they're the ones saying, listen, I think we need to stop. I mean, people are getting tired. You're burning them out, Nehemiah. People are getting fatigued. The rubble is so much, there's no way we can put it all together. It's at this moment I want to take a time out. And I want to look at the people of Judah and I want to say, now wait a minute. In just a matter of a few weeks, you've already built the wall half its height. That's 50%. So the amount of rubble has to be at least 50% less than it was when you started, right? I mean, it's got to be, it's got to be looking up. It's got to be looking better. I mean, there's got to be at least 50% less of the rubble than it was just a few weeks ago. And then I want to say to the men of Judah, wait a minute. You're the ones who are supposed to be the warriors. You're the ones who are supposed to fight for God. You're the ones who are supposed to be the encouragers. You're the ones who are supposed to be the good rulers and the faithful leaders of God's people. Let me just put the cookies on the bottom shelf. This would be like internal conflict where it's the deacons and the choir members and the Sunday school teachers 
and the small group, D group leaders and the volunteers in the children's ministry and student ministry, when they begin to cry out and say, listen, we can't keep up the work. The work is too hard. What God has called us to do is too labor intensive. I don't think we can do it. I mean, God's people begin to cry out against Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah, I think we just need to stop the work and let the culture prevail. Just let the culture win because we're surrounded by the enemy and we're getting tired, and there's so much rubble, there's so much chaos, there's so much uh, gaping holes all along the wall. I don't know if we're making a dent in society. I don't know if we're doing any good. Nehemiah, let's just throw up our hands in despair. Let's just wave the white flag of surrender. And this was coming from the men of Judah. What do you do? What does Nehemiah do? I mean, it's one thing to face external conflict in spiritual warfare. It's another thing when the external conflict becomes internal conflict, and it's your own family, it's your own people, it's yourself. And now you're facing huge questions, and you're wondering, should we just give up the fight that God has called us to do? What does Nehemiah do? Verse 9, but we prayed, and we posted a guard. To meet this threat. But we prayed. Friend, listen, prayer is the only appropriate response to opposition. Prayer is the only appropriate response to opposition. One of the greatest tools in our arsenal is prayer. We need to pray not less but more. We need to pray more, be more dependent upon God because prayer is the only appropriate response to opposition. Whether that opposition in spiritual warfare is external or internal, we as God's people need to be a people of prayer. But I want you to notice in verse 9 that it says, but we prayed and posted a guard to meet this threat. Now I want you to hear clearly what I'm about to say. In no way am I diminishing prayer. But I want you to know that Nehemiah says not only are we going to pray, but we're also going to do some very practical things. He's not saying that prayer's not practical, so don't misquote me, okay? Prayer is very powerful. It is very practical. But there are other things that they needed to do. They needed to pray, but they also needed to post a guard to meet this threat. To any person who, you know, kind of says, you know, just... Let go and let God. Just pray. Just let go. Let God. He's got it. Just let go and let God. Listen, I know you don't say it like that, but that's how I hear it when you say it. Just let go. Let God. He'll take care of it. He'll he'll provide. We don't do anything. Well, just read once again Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 9. But we prayed. That's so important. Nobody's diminishing that. And we posted a guard. There was something that needed to be done even beyond the prayers that were offered in that place. Make no mistake about it. Some of us, we just need to pray more. Our prayers are anemic. I mean, our our prayers are are, are wimpy. It's like a pansy, like a withered flower. It is feeble. We need to pray more. You know, I I think the, the more I pray, the more effective I become in prayer. Um. I think prayer is something that we need to exercise in our life. Uh, The the, the more we do it, the stronger it becomes. 
It, it verbalizes and voices our utter dependency upon God. We need to pray more. There are some of us here, and our biggest problem in life is that we don't realize that all of our problems are spiritual problems, and we don't deal with our spiritual problems in prayer. So we need to pray more. So please hear me say that. But for some of us, uh, we pray a lot, and we still have problems. And the reason we still have problems is because we have not posted a guard to meet the threat. I mean, we need to pray, but there are also practical steps that we need to take in order to us to be victorious in this spiritual warfare. Let me give you just a couple examples of what I'm talking about. If you want to fight for a strong marriage, you better pray. You better pray. Pray before you get married. Uh, pray when you're engaged. Uh, pray after you say, I do. You pray for your spouse. You better pray but you also better post a guard. You need to be ruthless about righteousness so that you read in the words of the Hebrew letter in the New Testament that the devil watches the marriage bed. And as a married couple, you realize that in that marriage bed, the only people in that marriage bed that are invited are God, husband, and wife. That's it. Nobody else is invited. Nobody else is allowed. Nobody else is permitted into that covenant marriage bed. And you've got to be ruthless about righteousness. You've got to be, you've got to be hungry for holiness. You've got to put the post, the guard, uh, put the, uh, uh, the, the, the guard in place so that you're tenacious about holiness. It's not just that you pray for your spouse, but you work at your own moral purity. And men, you set the guard in place. You post the guard so that you are the spiritual leader of the home. You help set the spiritual temperature of the house. You don't just bring your family to church, you lead your family to church. You are the one that leads in the prayer and the Bible study and the home. You're the one that opens the Bible and, and, and begins to have the conversations about whatever area of life and you see it through the lens of Christ and Him crucified and what the Scripture has to say. And wives, you, you, you love your husband. You respect your husband. For you know that God has given you Him. And together, you do your best to be faithful to the Lord in all matters. It is important to pray, but you also have to post a guard. Are you fighting to be an effective parent? Oh, friend, you better pray. You better pray to be a good dad and pray to be a good mom. Pray before you have kids. Pray uh, when you're pregnant. Pray uh, after they're delivered. You just keep on praying for your kids. If they go astray, you keep praying for them. You keep praying for them. You keep praying for them in the hopes that God will bring them to their senses and bring them back. You just keep praying for your kids, but you better also post the guard. You are the number one discipler of your children. Mom and dad, you're the one to introduce them to Jesus. You're the one to model for them what it looks like to be a Christ follower. You need to not only know your children, but know the friends of your children, know the music of your children, know the likes of your children, know the hobbies of your children, know the struggles of your children. 
And if I were to interview your children, if I were to ask them, who are the godliest people you know? If your children don't say mom and dad, you failed them. We are to be the godliest people that our children know. You say, but wait a minute, pastor. They see me on my worst days. I know my kids see me on my worst days. But they see what it is not to be perfect, but they see what it is to be faithful to God. And when we fail, we repent of our sin. And we're open and honest in our confession to say, yeah, dad messed up. Mom messed up. They've got to see us as we live faithfully before a loving God. Friends, you've got to pray, but you also better post the guard. I'll give you one other example. Are you fighting for healthy finances, um, you better pray. You pray. You pray about your job. You pray about the finances. You pray about the money that comes in. You pray and ask for blessing upon blessing. You know, I think I've told you before, I've never had the experience where I go out to the mailbox, I open the mailbox, and there's a $500. That's going to be there one day. But when it comes to the healthy finances of your life, not only do you, do you pray, but you better post the guard so you build a budget. You give the first 10% to God in the work of the church through the giving of tithes and offerings. I know there's no New Testament equation to generosity and generous giving, but the Old Testament uh, standard was the first 10% because I can give you this much testimony that I can do more with 90% if I give the first 10% to God than if I keep the 100% and spend it all on myself. It doesn't make any sense mathematically, but it does make sense spiritually because God blesses obedience. And you got to examine your finances, set the guard. You, you examine the finances and, and you take out some of the greeds and you put in only the needs. And God meets your needs. You got to pray. But in verse 9, the scripture says that not only did we pray, but we posted a guard day and night to meet this need, meet this threat. Maybe some of you need to pray more. Maybe others of you just need to post the guard a little bit more frequently. Nehemiah looks around and uh, he examines the wall and he sees there's some areas where the wall is low. And he puts families in place. I think that's very insightful. He wants the workers to know you're fighting not just for a wall, you're fighting for your wife. You're not just fighting to repair that section of stone, you're, you're, you're fighting for the salvation of your son and your daughter. You, you are fighting so that the faith can be preserved and passed on from one generation to the next. It's not just that we're building a wall. It's not just that we're doing this ministry or that ministry. We are doing this for the fact that the gospel must go forward and lost people can hear the good news. They can respond in faith and their life can be changed both now and forevermore. It's not that we're just working at a wall. We are working to protect our wife our brothers, our sisters, our family. We're working not just for this section or that section, but we're working for the salvation of lost people. Nehemiah examines, and he says to everybody who's listening, don't be afraid. When the enemy comes at you, don't be afraid. When the enemy wells up inside of you, don't be afraid. Christian, we have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. Do 
not fear. Remember the Lord, who Nehemiah says is great and awesome, and fight. Fight for God. Fight for your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, your wife, your home. Fight for it. Don't acquiesce. Don't give into society. Don't just negotiate uh, the truth of God. You, you fight for it. You dig in your heels and you say, I'm going to fight for this because it's worth fighting for. This is spiritual warfare. It's not for the pansy. It's for the person who trusts in God. I don't know about you, but um, when it comes to spiritual warfare in my life, when it comes to ministry that I'm engaged in, what keeps me going is the middle of the three things that Nehemiah said. Nehemiah said, don't be afraid. At the very end, he says, fight for your family. But in the middle, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. What motivates me in spiritual warfare is to be reminded Who I'm fighting for. I am fighting for the Lord. And the Lord of the Bible is a God who is great and awesome. And before I take my seat this morning, can I just remind you of this great, awesome God? It's the great, awesome God that flung the stars into space, taught the sun how to shine, told the ocean to only come so far. It's the great and awesome God that liberated the Israelites from Egyptian captivity, part of the Red Sea, so they could cross on dry land, escorted them into the promised land. It is the great and awesome God who preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish, turned down the thermostat for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, spoke through Ezekiel, so a valley of dry bones assembled and came back to life again. I want you to remember this God who is great and awesome, for he stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He was born in the Bethlehem barn. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cruel cross for your sins and for mine. They took down his body, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it, and on the third day, the dead body began to breathe again. On the third day Jesus got up this is the God who is great and awesome this is the God who ascended into the heavens with the promise he'll come back in like manner one day he will split the eastern sky he will have the royal righteous robe dipped in blood and on him will be inked king of kings and lord of lords he will mount his white horse he will descend he will establish his kingdom this is the God to whom we serve this is the God who is great and awesome this is the God to whom we work this is the God that we worship today for this God should have killed you but he kept you this God should have slaughtered you but he saved you the doctor said you got six months to live but God says no you don't because that was 12 years ago you should have been killed in the car wreck but God spared you in the car wreck the cancer should have eaten up your body but the great physician healed the cancer I don't know about you but I'm glad today that I serve a God who is great and awesome When you do God's work and God's way, opposition will come over the horizon. The spiritual conflict will be external at times. It'll be internal at other times. And sometimes it'll be both external and internal. And how do you handle it? Through prayer. Prayer is the only appropriate response to opposition. And sometimes in addition to prayer, we got to take some practical steps to post to guard to meet the threat that's coming against you and your family and the church. But always, we remember who we're fighting for. We're fighting for the Lord. He is great and awesome.
Don't let your strength wane. Don't let your courage waste away. Don't let your resolve be weakened. You take your place along the wall. You stand in that gap against our culture and society, and you declare, I will never forget our God who is great and awesome. If you're here today and you never trusted this great, awesome God, today can be the day of your salvation. I invite you to come. At the moment the first note is struck, you come take one of the ministers by the hand and you say, I need that God in my life. I confess my sin. I know that I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge that Jesus is the only one who can fix up that which has messed me up inside. And today can be the day of your salvation. Maybe you're here and, and you are being called by God to be a missionary a pastor, um, a, a leader in the church. Whatever God is calling you to do, you make that public today. Maybe you need to come and kneel and pray at the altar. Maybe you need to give your serve card and say, this is the area that I'm hunting for to serve. I want to serve in this way, in this capacity. However the Lord leads, you respond. Because as a church, we remember our Lord who is great and awesome. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. We pray that you'll move in a mighty way and we'll give you all the credit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.